started here soon. We're in Second Kings. Um, let's stay and read the first. Let's just read the chapter. It's not too long, and uh, and I find all these stories uh, very interesting, and uh, it'd be easier to speak about them anyway if you're familiar with it. Second Kings chapter one. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Uh, turns out archaeology have uncovered uh, letters written by uh, the king of Moab uh, where he uh, account gives an account of these rebellions. So I thought it was interesting. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. Now we didn't really get to it, but the last few verses of 1 Kings talk about how that after Ahab died, Ahaziah, his son, began to reign. He's an evil a king, uh, and which is what you're going to find uh, throughout the history of the northern tribes anyway. But he fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go to meet the messenger of the king of Samaria and say to him, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went out. And the messengers returned to the king and said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, it is because, is it because there is no king in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to, the, to them, What kind of man was he who came to you and told you these things? And they answered, He wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. And then the king sent a to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the king, the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And again the, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And, and he began to see the the depravity of, of this man who, uh, it doesn't matter. He, he's going to do what his will is. And, and that's all that matters, right? So he, he uh, sends down a third group, third 51. And the third captain of the 50 went and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains and their 50 men, the men of their 50, with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down and with him to the king and said to him, 
Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall come, not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the king, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Azariah had no son. And that was his brother then. In other words, another son of Ahab. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, what he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? You may be seated. So again, a very interesting story. But I think if you just stop and think about the main lessons of First uh, and Second Kings, uh, it really fits in quite well. So we'll get into that here in a moment. Uh, last week we saw, of course, with uh, Jehoshaphat kind of compromising with uh, Ahab and uh, going to war with him, even though he knew that uh, the, the good prophet uh, came and uh, said that uh, you shouldn't do this. Um, that, that it's not going to end well. He does it anyway, but the Lord saves his life because he uh, was overall a, a man of God. <clears throat> but we see the danger of not taking God's word seriously and compromising with the loss. And of course, that's exactly what we're seeing in this chapter. Uh, they're not take, they don't take God's word seriously. They don't take God seriously and therefore his word seriously. And it just always leads to disaster. And then even though God's people sometimes make really bad mistakes, the Lord is quick to forgive and to use us in spite of our weaknesses. We'll, look, we'll, say, we'll mention a few things about that at the beginning of the message concerning Jehoshaphat, who was a good king, but he just uh, had a problem sometimes saying no to uh, loss to, to the other king, the, the wicked kings, and it, and it led to problems. But the Lord uh, is ready to forgive, and we talked about how that... Uh, that there's never an excuse because we fail that to pick up ourselves, uh, you know, ask for forgiveness, learn from our mistakes, and keep going. And then we get a sneak peek at how God used secondary causes and our sinfulness to accomplish his will with those that God sent a lying spirit. Temptations and trials are not to get us to sin, but to test our love. That lying spirit would have found no, uh, would not have been able to do his work uh, if Ahab uh, wasn't listening to false prophets who were lying all along. And so uh, if, if he was listening to the Lord, to the right prophet, then the, there would have been no opportunity for him to be uh, fooled. And, and in one sense, we could say Ahab was not fooled uh, by listening to the lying uh, prophet because they haven't been uh, they haven't been leading to any... They, the word doesn't come true to start with. It never had. And that had been, but it, like, just like we see in our chapter here, it doesn't matter the obvious facts. If a, a wicked heart, before God regenerates us, a wicked heart can only do wicked things. And, and that's what we see. It's such, a, it's such a good lesson in what total depravity looks like and, and what human nature is before God gets a hold of us. And that, that that's all of us. It's a look at all of our hearts until God saves us. Well, as, as we've pointed out before, I think, uh, originally this was just one book, the book of Kings, the, the account of the Chronicles of the Kings. It wasn't first and second that was divided up, I think, just to kind of make it easier for us to uh, study and so forth. But uh, last week we did see some things about Jehoshaphat that was not good, even though overall he was a good and strong king. 
we find out if you read in Second Chronicles 17, chapter 17 through 20, that he was a rich king, that he had put many of the small nations around him under tribute, and uh, he had about a million man army. He gives an account of how many from each tribe and uh, so forth, and it comes adds up to around a million. So he was a very strong, and, and Israel really at this at this point, Judah was as strong as it had been since David. It would appear to be so. He was he was a good king. Uh, the Edom, the king of Edom, was really not a king, but just a kind of a governor. They had Edom completely under their control. Got tribute from them. Um, unlike some of the other kings, he doesn't seek alliances with other nations for help. He he does uh, work with them, and that's a problem that we've talked about. But he doesn't. Uh, there was a great army that came up against him. Again, if you read in Second Chronicles, there was a, uh, a great army that came up against him uh, that completely outnumbered him. But instead of even fighting, he just goes right to the Lord. He doesn't go looking. He just goes to the Lord. And the Lord just delivers him in a spectacular way. If you go and, again, read the account, it's very interesting. They They muster themselves together for battle, but the Lord has... The enemy thrown in confusion. They basically wipe each other out, and and Judah just goes and kind of mops up the rest of it. So there's some great things that happen with Jehoshaphat that we won't really be looking at in detail in Second Kings. But um, he we we did see where he uh, does go into alliance with Ahaziah, the king that we're look, reading about here in chapter one, in building ships. Uh, to go do trade, and they were in cahoots, you might say in business with uh, this man, and the Lord destroys the ships. We find out that he does not rebuild the ships because a prophet comes and says that this, because you have done this in, in, in cahoots with this wicked king, that's why the Lord has done that. So Jehoshaphat says, fine. And he doesn't rebuild, doesn't try to go against God. He, he accepts God's message there and doesn't do it. So he learns from his uh, mistakes. So um, while he does some weird things like uh, go to a wicked king, uh, at this king Azariah, to get a daughter for his son, that leads to idolatry that he's got to deal with. So it doesn't no good comes from it. Yet he, he's that enigma, you might say. But, it, but I don't know if I even should say enigma because we see ourselves a little bit like this. We you know, we think we're doing well, and then we just fall completely on our face spiritually. We do something, and and yet it, it, we see that overall that, that he does good. He, he serves the Lord well, so we, we don't need to be discouraged. Uh, we should take our sin and failure seriously when we fall into sin, but there's a right way to take care of that. It doesn't have to be the end. Well, the first chapter of Second Kings begins with Ahab's wicked son, Ahaziah. The good news is that Ahab is dead. The bad news is, is that his son is just as wicked and stupid as he is. He has learned nothing. Uh, you know, if anyone could ever be saved by good preaching alone, this would be the time. He, he's seen the famine, why it was sent, what happened at Mount Carmel. He has seen why his parents died. All these things he's seen, but until God gives you eyes to see, uh, it doesn't matter. And so, we, as we've said, this is such a great depiction of the need of God to uh, regenerate us before we can be saved and uh, turn and, and believe uh, in him. So, this is emphasized 
in our account by his accident. Instead of seeking God's help, he seeks the help of Baal. Uh, he's given an opportunity to, to, uh, that few get to, to be on his deathbed and to have to consider his actions, to consider his life and his future, but to no avail. And then to make matters worse, but of course, just like his father, when the message from Yahweh comes that you're going to die because you have sought the help of a false god, he doesn't repent. He just hates the messenger. And so that's the way that goes. That's kind of the lot of every preacher who preaches the truth. It's not to say that good preachers can't do things that maybe offend and maybe things they shouldn't do, but at the end of the day, if you've been around for very long, and I've seen it not just in my own life, but certainly in the lives of many of my friends, pastor friends, uh, standing for the truth, uh, you're going to offend people and they're going to, they're going to reject you. Because, uh, it, it's, it's, and I'm talking about, of course, lost people, not, not Christians who have differences, you know, right, good or bad. Uh, they, they don't want to hear the truth. You know, and so they're not, they're not going to stand for it. And so here, even the death of 102 of his men, Loyal men mean nothing to him because uh, that's what idolaters do. They worship themselves. Now, perhaps we need to also think about this, uh, what seems to be an intolerant God, an intolerant Yahweh. And this is a passage that maybe might say a quintessential example of, of passages that people say that the Old Testament God is a mean, intolerant God. Because it seems like, boy, he's really being hard on these seemingly innocent 102 men, soldiers that, that, that have come, right? But, of course, first of all, uh, to, to, to see that is to really have not a very good understanding of, the old, of what the Bible teaches about God. And, but uh, we want to just think about that. Is God here just being intolerant or hateful? Uh, is, is there a reason, perhaps, why these men are killed? Like this, and we would assume that to be the case, right? Um, those who don't bow the knee will be judged, and, and that's certainly what we see here. Uh, if you notice here, the first two groups, when they come, they, they, it gets a little bit worse on the second group. They come and say, the king has spoken, O man of God. They, they, they recognize that he is a man of God. And what did I say the theme of, the, of these books have really been? How do we receive... The word of God. So here is the word of God that has come to the king. And they acknowledge he's the word of God. And then they tell him, but the king has spoken. This is what you are to do. And, and the fact that they sent 51 men, uh, it was pretty apparent that the king was going to kill him or was going to perhaps torture him to get him to say something uh, more pleasing to him. Uh, there, no good was coming. So they're saying, look, we reject who you are. And we want you to obey the king's word, not God's word. And they are burned alive for their trouble. <clears throat> and, you know, those who say, well, Jesus is a more, is a kinder God than the Old Testament God. But in Mark 10, 21, it says that Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he great possessions. The Lord says, look, there's only one option here. You forsake every idol that there is and you 
put me first in your life and you follow me alone. And that's exactly what, uh, that's, that's all Yahweh was doing to Ahaziah. There's only one God and as long as you're going to trust in uh, Beelzebub, uh, you're going to die. And things aren't going to go well. I was reading of an atheistic scientist who held a view that life might have begun on earth from some extraterrestrial intelligence. You know, because that's, you know, some movies that say that, you know, that's no new thing, but that was his position. He goes on to say something more than human, but less than a personal God. And it's telling that in his theory, why he believes it had uh, some distinct advantages. He says, for one thing, it offers the possibility of high intelligence within the universe, but not a God. See, because as long as there's not, it's not a God that I've got to answer to, then the, the, the thoughts of an intelligent life out there is fine. It's just the God part. It's just the one that I've got to answer to, the one who has made me and therefore requires that I serve him. No. So we will devise uh, theories that have, that have no proof in reality and no scientific proof, but the alter- but that's better than the alternative that there's a God. And of course, we've talked about that um, over and over again. And so um, Ahaziah is dying, and his immortal soul is in danger, but he calls for a God that he has seen fail time and time again because the alternative is unacceptable. And so, again, this is the reason why God is so harsh, as it were, with these men and with Ahaziah, because that is an extremely sinful and dishonoring uh, action. And it's no less for us when we would trust in those things and give our heart to things other than the Lord, or, or uh, that exceed our love for the Lord. It's just as sinful, just as dishonoring. And so, we don't want to be careful of saying, well, that's, these are all just lost people and, you know, what do you expect? Uh, it's very easy for Christians to fall into some of these very same, uh, you know, not subconsciously fall into things and give our love and to listen to the wisdom of this world over that of the Lord. It's the same sin, even when it comes from Christians. Um, and so in verse three, they come face to face with this intolerant God, as it were. We see that God holds us accountable for not thinking things through. He says, you know, there's no excuse for you, Ahaziah, to have gone to this king. Uh, when you've got all the prophets of Yahweh, whose word comes true and has come true, um, who have had victory over the false prophets, why have you not thought this through? And, of course, the, the answer would be, uh, it doesn't matter. He knows full well, full, well, full well, excuse me, there's a God in Israel. And he's just not going to listen to him. Uh, and God's not going to let him pass. So any any thought that, well, God's being intolerant or mean is to, to say that God, well, you, your person is really not that important. What you say and what you think, if I want to do this, I should be allowed to do that. But, but we're seeing here how God looks at that. And so it's very important that we understand that. He's suggesting that the Lord God is inadequate to handle his dilemma as he seeks help from another source. And then uh, we see these accounts of these 51 men coming to him in verse 9. As if facing this God isn't difficult enough, 
he now slays 102 men, uh, who at first sight uh, might, you know, people would assume perhaps are innocent. It's funny that some of the liberal commentators assume this is even made up because surely God wouldn't do this. You know, God's too loving to, to do such a thing. So this is some made up, somebody, some story that somebody made up because they call it moral pointlessness. You know, there's no point. God has done something. There's no point to kill. Why kill these men? Uh, even though they are uh, acting out rebellion to the Lord. But of course, they don't think that's a, a big deal. They're, and they say, well, they're just doing what Ahaziah has told them to do. Um, but that would, but notice that they would obey the king at this point shows that they feared him more than the Lord. They, they know what Ahaziah is up to, and they come and they start making demands of Elijah, and, and, and they die for it. So again, they 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 ha- there's an accountability that we have to do what's right, and it doesn't matter what authority tells you differently. We must do, and we must think and believe what is right, no matter what lie we're told to celebrate, or to believe, or to accept. If Christians who don't want to be judged of the Lord says no. Uh, I will instead believe what God says, and I will believe that reality. And we see here what, what how the Lord thinks about those who do not. <clears throat> so they would obey the king at, at this point. It shows that they fear him more than the Lord. And all these objections have one thing in common, these objections that the Lord is hateful here or unloving. They suggest that God cannot reveal himself directly and clearly that man can only vaguely understand God. But I think that just demeans God even more. God has spoken very clearly to these people and they have rejected it. And so that they are without excuse. Much of what we've been seeing in these books of the Kings is how people respond to God's word, as I've said. And so in these three groups of soldiers that come down to get Elijah, the first two look at Elijah and his God differently than the last one. I mean, Again, that, I think that helps us explain the first two events, that the attitude and the actions of this third guy is much different than the first two. The first two recognize Elijah, that he is a man sent from God with God's message, but then immediately starts speaking man's message to him. And is there not a sense in which when God is speaking, when, you, when God's word is being proclaimed, what we don't need to hear is what man has to say. Elijah says, I am a man, if I am a man of God. I think that explains why this happens. If he is a man of God, then they and the king should be asking, what do you have to say? What does God have to say? Not telling him what to say. It's kind of like the itching ears, you know, of the New Testament, uh, grabbing preachers with it, people who have itching ears, looking for some, a preacher who will scratch them. They're not looking to hear from God or listen to hear uh, someone just regurgitate what they already believe about themselves. And so they were acting like Elijah was just a man and that being a prophet of the Lord was something that they could take or leave and they could control Elijah. And the Lord teaches them differently. You don't control God. So is this moral pointlessness for these men to die? And I think, again, for anyone to 
to suggest that shows that ignoring and disobeying and treating lightly the Lord is no big deal. Is if you know, well, uh, we can treat God as we want to, and God loves us, and so He He will be understanding about that. Well, God, no, God is not understanding about rebellion and about people who know better. So when the third group comes to Elijah, they treat him as more important than the king's word and are saved from fire. It is important. See, the other, the third guy doesn't come expecting Elijah's going to do what he tells him to do. He says, Elijah, um, you are the man of God. You're in control here. God's, you know, by proxy, God is in control here. And he understands that. So it's important that we let God speak to us in this text. Lest we make a mistake of who God is. And that's why one of the reasons I love the Old Testament is because we we get such a good look at how God understands and sees and treats sin. One commentator even suggested that Elijah was being foolish and sinful when he called down fire. But God sides with him because it's a lesser of two evils. You know, Elijah's being vicious, even though he's not rebellious. Again, you see that somebody who, who doesn't look at the entire word of God and interpret this passage according to that, he's already got into his mind what kind of God he is. And so even though we are, God is revealing himself to us in some aspect in this passage, it doesn't matter. He's already got his theology of God and God's love already figured out. And so that gets read into the text. The eisegesis we to read into the text something that is not true. His point is in that God helps even when we don't obey him perfectly, God still he's still taking care of Elijah. But this is really what the account is saying, because there's no hint at all that God is upset with Elijah here. He seems to be supporting him one hundred percent. After all, remember that it is the Lord who instigates all this because Ahaziah is dishonoring him. Uh, you know, he's the one who, who causes to take place to begin with. <clears throat> so God is to blame, and it's the Lord's point to show us that he hates sin. And he hates idolatry. And, and as we've said, sending 50 men, I think, shows that Ahaziah's intent was to kill Elijah, to do him harm in some way. One man could have summoned Elijah. He could have said, he could have said, well, a guy had said, hey, go ask, go ask Elijah to come. But he doesn't do that. You you don't send 51 people to get one guy unless you, you know, you got uh, something nefarious going on. Um, and so the fire, in a sense, it just speaks of the judgment of Mount Carmel when, when the fire came down to differentiate the true God from the false God. So, the same thing's happening here. And and those who follow the, the, the uh, false god are the ones who suffer the the, uh, the judgment. So um, I think, again, the, the point is that the king should have put two and two together, especially when he heard about the fire coming down, that he, he should have immediately thought of Carmel, and there's only one react, proper reaction. And the third captain gets it. He says, okay, look, I'm dealing with the true God here, and I'm either going to uh, follow this wicked king or I'm not, and, and, and save my life. 
uh, others have used James and John. Remember, they asked the Lord to call down fire from uh, onto uh, these cities because uh, they had rejected Christ. They were uh, pagan cities or Gentile cities, and the Lord rebukes them. And so they say, well, that right there shows you that Elijah, what he's doing here is wrong. The Lord doesn't send, uh, want to send fire down upon people and all that. But again, there's some problems there. First of all, the Bible is very clear that the Lord came the first time unto salvation, that he, the judgment will be coming the second time in time. We're looking for him to come as we've been studying here in 1 Corinthians 15, right? We're waiting for him to come. And when he comes back, he will judge uh, everybody, right? He'll bring fire, as it were. But that wasn't the purpose of his first coming. His first coming was to bring the message of good news, the good news, to and to be the good news, to, to do the work of the gospel. And then, But, but not only that, uh, the, the reason I think Jesus kind of berates uh, James and John for wanting to call down fire upon these Gentile cities is because they want... They're doing that because they're Gentiles. And they don't have any concern for Gentiles. I mean, that's one lesson the disciples had to learn. The cities of Israel have been doing the same thing. The, Jesus had been rejected by many. Remember in Nazareth, his hometown, they were going to kill him. And the disciples weren't telling him to send down fire upon the Jewish cities, just these Gentile cities. So, so to compare these two things is just you know bad thinking. Uh, Jesus, is, uh, I think, said, no, uh, you, you guys need to stop and consider what you're saying. And there's hypocrisy involved in that as well. Remember, the guy has already agreed with Elijah that the time of judgment has come. Remember, we talked about that uh, when Elijah was, uh, I think, in, in Mount Sinai. And, and the covenant had been broken for the last time. And uh, so the, the, uh, the, the fate of the northern, northern tribes was sealed at that time. And Israel lived under a covenant in which they agreed to such judgment if they forsook the Lord. So, so all this is just merely the Lord doing according to the covenant that they themselves had agreed to. Just because they had rejected him and were serving the bells, it didn't change anything. They were still under this covenant until the Lord brought it to an end. No such covenant exists today. God judges us as he sees fit, but we don't live today in a kind of situation um, and really, Jesus is teaching James and John that we, that in the New Testament, we look at sinners a little bit differently. Yes, they're under the judgment of God, but it's not our job to do it. In the Old Testament, to some degree, it was God's people's job uh, to carry out judgment upon the wicked for, for different reasons. But now, we are here to give the good news, because the gospel is now going forth to all the world. It wasn't just in Israel. And so we, we look at our position a little bit differently. That's why we don't take up the sword to try to uh, take matters into our own hands. And the Lord will do that. We're here to preach the gospel. And so a lot of things have to be taken into consideration, when we, especially when we look at some of these Old Testament accounts. Certainly not our job to call down judgment for, uh, the, uh, for the non-repentant. Now having said that, I think we have precedent in the precatory psalms, for instance, to ask God to bring judgment uh, along uh, upon the wicked, uh, I had no problem praying that God would remove those in our government who are 
deliberately rejecting God's laws and are bringing God's judgment down upon us, this country, because of their sin. And the Lord would remove them however he sees fit and put good people in, uh, in, in their place. I don't think it is wrong for us to, like I say, to pray that there were two that God would remove Hitler from his position, right? And there's there's some today in our own government that are not much different than Hitler, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to human life. So it's one thing to pray, though, that God would take care of that. It's another thing for us uh, to do it ourselves. That requires a little bit, a little bit different kind of, you know, some some more thought. But anyway. Another thing to think about is that here fire represents the protection of God's people. He, he protects Elijah through this fire. And one thing we need to remember is that God doesn't always protect us in, in this age. Well, he didn't even do it in the Old Covenant, certainly not today. He doesn't always protect us from the sin and the hatred of this world. Uh, and that's okay. Elijah is a a faithful witness, and the Lord protects him, and the Lord will protect us as he sees fit, but then sometimes he won't. And in this sense, no matter how much this world tries to silence the witness of God's people, it will ultimately fail. We see here that God has the last say in all that, and that's good to remember. I was reading about a, of a, a story of a man called Cornelius Martins, who was a Baptist pastor in Russia, in the 1920s, of course, right after the Bolshevik Revolution, and he had been hauled in before the Communist Party in the 1920s, and he told them that he was not afraid to die, but that they weren't going to do anything to him unless God allowed it. Well, you know, that's the last thing uh, these guys would want to hear, and the whoever was in charge of this scene said, well, we'll see, and he pulls out his pistol, and he's going to shoot the guy in the head, but his hand freezes. And he can't pull the trigger, he can't do anything. And it goes on for a while, and um, finally he asked someone else, what were the charges against this guy? And they said, well, he's a Baptist, he, um, but can't you see that uh, God's fighting for him? You know, kind of said, you know, maybe you need to think, rethink all this. And so he told them to say, well, get out of here. So the Lord, in a spectacular display, saves this man's life who is being faithful. But we know that you know, under the communist rule, for instance, uh, there was a good 120 million people died in the last century. Uh, and many of them are Christians. So, you know, again, we, we as Christians have to understand that it's not God's will to always save us from danger. But what's important is that in Christ, we know that we shall eventually overcome. We will win on those who are on the Lord's side. So we can't help but be a little amazed at Ahaziah's sinfulness and his total lack of concern for his men. But this is what happens when people hate God. So what we see here is that nothing else really matters. And then in verse 13, um, this, this, uh, this third guy comes to Elijah and, and there's nothing wrong with a little good godly fear. Uh, you know, he, he's afraid for his life. And uh, that's really, in a sense, part of the motivation for the gospel, is that we're under the wrath of God. And, and, and there's only one way you're, you're going to escape this. So fear is a proper motivation. We understand, of course, that as a Christian, 
love is the only proper motivation when it comes to really keeping the law, right? Love is the fulfillment of the law, but until we're a Christian, fear is a good motivation. It's not that there's not other things, but it's nothing wrong with telling people that there's a hell, that there's a hell, there's a the wrath of God is real because of sin. It doesn't mean that God is not a God of love and mercy and grace and compassion, but he can only be those things if, if, if first because he's a holy God whose wrath is against those who practice iniquity. There would be no need for grace and mercy and compassion for people who didn't, uh, who, who weren't, there's nothing wrong with them. You don't show mercy to somebody who's not in danger. You don't show grace to somebody who hasn't done you wrong in some way, right? So, God's love can only be understood in relationship to his wrath against sin. And uh, we, we see all those things going on here. Uh, I was reading about, and they had prepared an outside pulpit for George Whitfield, who, of course, he ministered in the 1700s. <clears throat> and there was a massive crowd that was going to be uh, here at uh, this particular venue. They, they built this pulpit for him to preach from. And as he's starting to preach from the text, Hebrews 9.27, where it says, is appointed a man once to die. He gets going, and all of a sudden there's a scream, and somebody uh, drops dead. And so they, you know, like, part him off or whatever they do, and he, he gets started to preach again, and there's another, and someone else drops dead. Well, you know, now, it's it's the 1700s, and, and people are always dropping dead, because, you know, it's, it's just, no one lived very long back then, you know, a lot of times. But, you know, as you're standing there and you're and he's preaching about death and the judgment and, and answering to the Lord that follows, and people are dropping dead, it makes you stop and take his word seriously, right? This is a, this is important, and I imagine those people listen pretty intently to the message. And but that's the proper way to respond when we read God's word is not to start trying to judge God or to make excuses for God or to minimize sin and rebellion. Uh, but God, there's so many passages that speak to God's wrath against sin. That's that's the proper way to listen to it. And if we take away God's wrath, then the cross really makes no sense. Why, why would uh, God allow his son to die in, in such a fashion if we weren't sinners in, in trouble in a way that we couldn't fix it? Uh, that's exactly why people like Rob Bell, which I don't know if you are familiar with him, this is, this has been, he was kind of, his name kind of went through the circles, I want to say 10, 15 years ago when he wrote the book, um, Love Wins. And he was, I think, a pastor in Michigan. I might be wrong about that, but, and Love Wins means that ultimately everybody is going to be saved. Even those in hell, you know, even if whatever hell is, you know, it, it because love wins. God loves everybody, wants everybody to be saved, and so eventually everybody's got to be saved. Well, the reason they can get such a wide audience and say that is because they don't take God's word seriously. There, there's no indication in Jesus' ministry that you could rebel against him and ultimately it would be okay. And he speaks quite a bit about the eternality of hell. 
So you just don't find things in the Bible that's a dis- distortion. So when it comes to the account of Isaiah, we don't read of how he reigned, but we read about how he died. Not much is said about Isaiah, except that he died. He was wicked and he died. Uh, and he, uh, just as God said he would, uh, we can't expect anything different than what God says. Ahaziah and his wants are not the focus of history. They're not the focus of his history. What he did isn't the, was it mattered. It, what, who God was is what mattered. And when you reject that, you find yourself on the wrong side of history. He doesn't die well because he's a lost person. He's got no reason to die well. Anyone who, any lost person who, who dies peacefully and without a lot of troubled in his heart is someone whose conscience has been seared, who, who doesn't somehow has been pacified and, and uh, confused about life. And, it's, and you think about Voltaire, who was one of the great skeptics of, uh, I think he lived in the early 1800s, maybe late 1800s, 1700s, but he was a great skeptic and denied God left and right. It did much damage, but he died you know, basically screaming because he knew that he was not ready to meet God. That's how the lost die. At least that's how they should die. But of course, the good news is, is that if we know Christ, we don't have to die like that. And of course, that we've spent much of First Corinthians 15 talking about that. But so, uh, I want to be able to die well. I don't want to die like Ahaziah, rejecting God and suffering the consequences of it. Any questions or comments before we now for prayer? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love to us this day. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, in Christ the wrath of God has been removed so that we now are not just tolerated, but we have become sons of God. We are loved. We are seen as perfectly righteous, as obedient children. And because of that, because of Christ and his righteousness, we are safe. We can never be rejected. So Lord, what an amazing work of salvation you have wrought in Christ and Thank you, Lord, that the mercy you have bestowed upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.